have our ideas and understandings shifted over the year about teaching in a pandemic? Today on the show, I bring back the guests that were featured in episode 30. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Adam Kaplan, Laura Jensen, Garth Nichols, and Les Macbeth were the dream team that I spoke to very early on in the pandemic. Like, I want to say that I recorded the conversations with them a few days into the March 2020 lockdown. We didn't entirely know what we were getting into, but one thing was clear. These folks would be thinking about pandemic pedagogy in an interesting way. And they did. And you listened. This is still one of my number one most listened to episode of the podcast. One year later, instead of solo interviews, we all gathered together on a Tuesday night and had a roundtable discussion about what we've learned in the past year, how teachers are using this moment as an opportunity, the idea of learning loss, and how we are all really doing. As always, these four edu superstars have powerful insights about our present tense and what's the next stages of learning and what they might look like. Please welcome back to the show, Adam, Laura, Garth, and Les. Welcome back one year later after we recorded our pandemic pedagogy. We've got the dream team back in studio and we're going to talk about what we know now a year into this fun pandemic and all of the ins and outs of this roller coaster that we've all been riding. So let's uh, introduce ourselves. So I'm going to start with you, Les. Can you say who you are, where you live and what you do? Sure thing. Thanks, Celeste. Um, my name is Les McBeth, and I'm the Director of Special Projects at Future Design School. We are based in Toronto, Ontario, but we work with schools all over the world. And let's jump into Garth. Hi, Celeste. Nice to see everybody. Uh, I'm Garth Nichols. I'm the co-founder of Cohort 21 out of CIS Ontario. And I work in my day job at Havergal College as Vice Principal of Strategic Innovation and Design. And uh, I feel like we should do a land acknowledgement. As we're all connecting from disparate locations, I acknowledge that I myself am on the ter traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Toronto is also covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississauga of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. With each land acknowledgement, this is just me now kind of uh, reflecting on them and why I think it's important, but with each land acknowledgement, we hope to bring a similar understanding to help all of us reflect on our past and present of colonialization, to listen and to further to listen to further land acknowledgments with more critical mind and space, space that's being colonized and taken up by others. It's important we recognize privilege to each be in our own houses. Learning about education systems and structures is powerful places for reconciliation and dismantling of colonialization. And this acknowledgement is only the first step in doing so. Thank you, Garth. Uh, we'll shift over to Lara. 
Hi, I'm, oh, hi Celeste. <laughs> I'm Lara Jensen and I teach at Upper Canada College in Toronto. Um, I'm a technology integrator there and so that means I work with teachers and students from kindergarten to grade five and I also teach design in grade seven this year. Thank you. And Adam, who you are, where you live and what you do. Hi Celeste. Um, I'm Adam Kaplan and a number of these things have changed since we last talked a year ago. Um, I now live in a new house in Toronto, and I work at a new school. I'm the director of HCX at Haverhill College, and HCX is an innovation hub that powers the strategic direction. Yeah, so much has happened in a year. Les is a baby. I have a baby. Adam has a new job. Um, I'm sure there's tons of new things with Garth and Lara that aren't as big as a baby or a new job, but let's take a moment and pause and reflect about the last year. Um, it's been a whirlwind for all of us. And I want to know, most importantly, Adam, are you still wearing a suit and tie when you talk to students online? <laughs> I was re-listening to the episode and reflecting on exactly how unlikely that was, even as I was saying it. But I like the idea. I like I like yeah, that you said no. that even still. I mean, I think that we were one day into the pandemic and we haven't even started <laughs> online learning, but I had to know because I feel like that there is something important about the consistency and the routine. And I think that's the spirit of what you were saying. Let's start in with just looking at what we have collectively learned about teaching and learning in a pandemic this past year. Lots of things have happened. We've done lots of professional learning. We've also just learned from trial and error. So is there any like big takeaways that you've had over the past year about teaching and learning? Well, I'm happy. I'm happy to go first. Do it. Um, the proverbial sacred cows are not as sacred anymore. The big the big systems and structures that we thought were immovable pieces in education have been proven to be uh, lighter than we thought to lift up and move around. When we talk about independent schools in particular, the expectations of parents, um, parents have been showing some good agility and flexibility with expectations on the whole. But I think in terms of, I, I mean, just, just imagine uh ever contemplating hey do you think we could teach for like a month where we just teach online and see what that does you know, how do we how do we know what to do and and think of the thinking that would have to go in behind that the research that would have to go in behind that um this is all you know obviously like on the backs of our faculty and well-being of our students and faculty um in this context but i think that what i have learned about teaching and learning in this pandemic is that the big immovable pieces are lighter than we thought they'd be to move. Mm. What are those immovable pieces that you've actually seen on the ground changing? For me, uh, timetable, mm. prioritization of student agency and well-being um, over curriculum and assessment. I think those are two massive pieces, and I'm just going to hold there because I want other people to jump in, but those are two huge pieces that um, – that, that we thought were really, really heavy uh, to move. And now we know we can position student well-being at the forefront of everything that we do and should be. It's, you know, faculty well-being is critical. And so when we look at report card writing cycles, when we look at assessment cycles, we can look at them differently now because this has shown that we can. 
interesting that you mentioned timetable, Garth, because I, I was thinking the same. Just um, I think one of the things we've learned is how flexible and nimble even a large organization can be. Like we've changed our timetable several times over the course of the pandemic where we've done something and realized, you know what, it's really not working this way. And so we just change it. And that can be hard for sure on students, on families, on teachers, but it's always changed for the better. We've always been happy that we've made that shift as we've gone along. And even the same with the way our students were connecting to all of their online classes, we changed partway through in the middle of of the pandemic last year, where we realized, you know, for younger kids, it's really not working the way we wanted it to. And we wanted to streamline the way they accessed all their classes. And so we just changed it. And I think before it would have taken us longer to sort of deliberate upon the best ways to do that, how to make that shift. And we realized, you know, it's important. We're just going to do it now. And I just find we're more nimble than we were before. Yeah, you have to be. I think that there is so much uncertainty that like you can just play around with that. Like it's almost like you lean into that and then see what could happen. It's like the spirit of experimentation. Uh, Les, yeah, you're I not think- actually in a school. You're at Future Design School. So I'm curious what you've seen in your unique vantage point. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is that we work with schools in so many different regions that have gone through so many different versions of lockdown or non-lockdown or um, partial lockdown. I was actually just on a call today with a school in Seattle that just brought their students back in person for the first time, like over the last three weeks, and they sort of slowly cohorted them back in, but they have been completely online since this all started last March. Um, and uh, in that way, I think there's been a huge um, investment and upskilling around technology. Uh, there's, you know, obviously the infrastructure that's been put into schools um, and it's been put into uh, technology that's been put into the hands of kids. I think that that's definitely we've seen this like incredible trajectory around um, the use of technology. I think that the challenge that lies ahead is how do we um, help ensure that that technology is in service of good pedagogy and What's the connection if we go back to our old like SAMR models or the TPAC models? And I think that that needs to become part of the conversation because it was kind of a just like, let's just figure out how this works and how do I survive using this technology? And I think that there's opportunity for a deeper discussion around um, how can this technology actually be in service of good teaching and learning? Um, In terms of what I've seen in, in, in that area, I think one of the best things that I've seen is that the walls of the classroom have become a little bit more permeable. You know, you've got students learning from outside the classroom. You've also got opportunities to bring people from outside the classroom into your classroom. Everyone's used to this virtual world now. So I think that starting to to bring more of the real world in, leveraging some of that technology is really interesting. Um, And then I think we've also seen, uh, as Garth mentioned, that like systems and structures that people thought were unchangeable uh, aren't so unchangeable at all um, after all, and that uh, a lot of good can potentially come out of this, which I think is what I was sort of hoping for last year around this time is that like, let's use this as an opportunity to actually rethink uh, some of these systems and make sure that they are in service of students. Um, I have other things to say about other topics that aren't related to changing things. So I'll just wait on that. I want to hear what Adam has to say. Les, it's so nice to hear you talk about Samer and Teapack. It makes me almost school, nostalgic. Right? <laughs> for, they were like the core of, of a life that has changed so much for me. Um, one of my big experiences this year has been joining the new community. And so um, I think I, a number of my perspectives may be similar to Garth's now that we're at the same school. Um, but one of, the, one of the articles he directed me to um, gave me this idea that schools don't change like a business. They change like a village. 
and when Garth said that, it, re it really resonated. Um, so when Lara talks about how flexible and nimble a large organization can be, I wonder if it's in part because it's all um, so deeply tied to the people within that community. And joining a new community in a pandemic is unusual. I haven't shaken the hands of my colleagues. Um, I'm hearing stories about all the traditions and rituals and past practices that made the community so vibrant. And yet I'm having my own experience, as is everybody within the community. Um, so I think recognizing what community well-being looks like for a group, but also how different it is for absolutely every single person at the school. Mm. Ahead, I think that sense of community is something that we've really learned too, just how important that is and how hard it is sometimes to make sure everybody feels like they're a part of that community. Like I know with our young, because I teach younger kids, we found really early on that for those, because of our hybrid model, some students were at home and some were in the class. And it was really important to project the face of those kids at home into the classroom so that the kids mm. in the class felt like they were there. They felt like they were talking to them. They felt like they were part of the community since so much of it was done synchronously since they're so young, um, just to have their big face there on the screen made a huge difference. And it wasn't something that I saw with older happening with older kids where they were all on their own devices and looking at their devices more. Um, but yeah, just that sense of community felt really, really important to create and sometimes challenging to maintain. Do you feel like people have actually started to ask more deeply, how do we actually build community? Because it's not just a default now. Yeah, I think now that ties that... into social emotional learning too, right? If you think about how that's become such a big focus, so much of that is built around, of SEL is built on feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself and, and understanding how that works. So I would imagine those things are connected. Yeah, and also like cultural mores within the school it's too, you know, Adam has experienced, you know, when I think about onboarding Adam into Havergal, I'm, <laughs> I come at it from a sense of loss. I'm like, oh, you're mm. not going to, you're not going to, you know, those, those types of things. But I, I would also, I'd also say, you know, and push back a little bit uh, on this notion of like flexibility and adaptability um, because there is a cost, there's been a severe cost to this, right? Um and there's this, you know, very early on, we were talking about how this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And then just, I was in the, was doing the the Case National Leaders Conference and someone said, no, it's like an Ironman, you know, and I think about, you know, Leslie has talked at length about her experience doing an Ironman, but you, it's impossible to train for an Ironman while you are running an Ironman. <laughs> it's impossible to train for a marathon while you are running a marathon. And so... In terms of the big learn, like the big pieces and learning that's come out of this, we've learned a lot about systems change, you know, and this has forced us to press certain levers to accelerate that change, whether we like it or not. And now we're seeing the cost. And so we're learning, I think the most perceptive schools are going to be learning how, you know, how do we change our culture, our systems, our structures and maintain or even build in more well-being uh, within the school community. So I think it's important, like we just acknowledge that, yeah, lots of really great innovations have happened. And I think Leslie, like Future Design School published a whole report on it, you know, and um, the future of learning and those types of things. But we have to be knowledgeable and, and acknowledge that there's, it's, it's come at a cost. Like mm -hmm. when you move those big pieces, you know, there's a bunch of stuff underneath. <laughs> 
like it seems weird to think, okay, I've got three extra hours in my day with no recess duty and no commute. I'm sitting at home. I can be wearing sort of more comfortable clothing, and yet it's still exhausting. And I don't think anyone anticipated that when we first said that we were going to do this, just how tiring it is to be on a screen so much, to not be moving as much. Because at school, like even just moving to lunch, to recess duty, it's a lot of walking. And that doesn't happen from my kitchen to my dining room the same way anymore. Like, um, Yeah, it's just been surprising just what a difference that makes to me. And I notice it particularly with the, the older students that I teach too, that you can tell that they just glaze over partway through the day, like it's enough of the screen. <laughs> Yeah, I'm mostly an introvert at heart. And I think that I wouldn't have anticipated how much I need social connection in order to have that energy. Like I really, really, really miss just the casual interactions with my colleagues. Um, even when I was in person, I would see like two colleagues, like my teaching partner who I taught the same subject as and my person that I taught the same students as. And that was it. Like it really, that's what drained me the most. So Celeste, to that point, I was on a I was on a call and there's 12 of us on this call and we're waiting for one other person to come in to the call and no one's saying anything because any side conversation is not a side conversation, right? So for me to say, like, let's pretend we were all on this call and we're waiting for someone else. It's like to say, for me to unmute and say, hey, Celeste, you'll never guess what happened to me the other day. It's like a public conversation. So you're even missing those side moments where you're walking like, hey, sorry, I'm late. Holy smokes, the coffee was backed up or like, you know, traffic or you'll never believe what happened to my kid the other day. You're missing those types of conversations. And yes. for those of us who are introverts, those are the conversations that we thrive off of as opposed to, <laughs> you know, a big like the, the big group energy. For those that so many of us here are introverts, and I felt the same at the beginning, where just all this constant FaceTime on the screen was exhausting because mm. I felt like I was being booked all day long by people initially. Um, and it was all good, it was all helpful. I felt like I was helping people, but it was really draining. <laughs> um, and now it's better, but initially it was exhausting. Let's talk about that just for a second. I think that's a really interesting point because I feel like it's performative to be on a screen. Um, I had like a double date with two friends of ours, like my wife and I, we have a couple friend that we really like. So we had like a Zoom date and we just turned off the video feature that shows our faces. And it was like the old times where we were sitting in a living room drinking wine and talking. And I'm like actually really worried about you know, middle schoolers at this developmental stage that are seeing their own face on the screen all day and how exhausting that must be to be performing being a student or being performing being a colleague. Like that, I think, is such a hard part about this. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of uh, working with schools and talking to teachers about what their biggest challenge has been for online learning. We've been collecting a bunch of data on this for the next iteration of our Future of Ed report that uh, Garth mentioned earlier. And uh, a lot of the, the challenge that we're seeing is that students, especially I think in the public system, I think independent schools are a little bit different because we've had the, we have the ability to set up some norms and say, you're expected to have your camera on. But a lot of the public schools um, because of privacy issues, which are totally legitimate. They don't, you know, not every kid feels comfortable showing the space where they live to other people or even having their face uh, on screen for other people that could be recorded. Um, the kids turn off their cameras 
And I think it just as much as it's exhausting for kids to see their own faces all day, I think for teachers, it's really challenging to build relationships and to read the room and to understand what your students are thinking when everyone has their cameras off and they won't even unmute themselves and they're talking in the chat. Um, but we've been we've been actually been able to leverage the chat in some really fun ways. Actually, Lara, the, the project that we did with the, the year six students at UCC a couple of weeks ago, we did this big project with all of the year sixes and, and sevens, and we were facilitating. And I remember the grade sixes, we had music playing as it was starting, and it was Pharrell's Happy. And they started doing live karaoke in the chat. Like they were all typing the lyrics to, to the song in the chat. Everybody all at once. It was crazy. The chat was just like going off. And it was just such an exciting moment. But it, we've been really trying to leverage that chat because that's where the kids seem to want to engage. And but it's so exhausting at the same time as a teacher to look at a whole bunch of avatars and they all change their avatar to be the same picture of the same people. And I don't know enough about pop culture to know who it is that they have as their avatar. So I spend half the time just asking kids like, what's your avatar? <laughs> Tell me about that. Like it's, it's, I think it's really challenging all around, whether you're on camera or off camera, there's challenges. So. Yeah, I would I would say too. There's also an equity issue as well in terms of the comfort level of people having their their cameras on and showing the background, like showing their their house or or what yeah. have you. Um, I think all almost every platform has evolved to allow for a really simple virtual background, but certainly that was an issue um, that was sort of highlighted at the beginning of the pandemic, school closures. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing from a lot of my middle-level learners that it's not so much about, um, I don't want to be on camera all day. It's more that, and that's what I assumed it was, but for they're saying that I'm not getting out of bed and I'm not taking care of myself. And I don't want to go on camera because I literally woke up three minutes before class started. Have you had similar things with students that you've heard about either in your own schools or anecdotally? And how do you address that? Because that's something that I don't think is just a public school issue. Like as Les was kind of alluding to, I think that it's pervasive. Like the well-being tied to some of the realities of being at home and then the like loop of then you're not feeling connected to your class. You're not feeling connected to your teacher. Your teacher's mental health goes down. Like all these things. Can anyone speak to that from their experience? I'll share an anecdote from one of our assemblies. Um, I think as schools are starting to pick up on these well-being frameworks and inventorying all the different areas that we can find well-being or that are emblematic of community well-being, um, things like environmental well-being, or we talk about uh, professional or, or role well-being. But the school captain shared her four areas, and they were nutrition, exercise, sleep, and social. And that was her way of checking in. How am I doing in those four areas? Uh, I'm doing great in nutrition. I'm doing terribly in exercise. I could do better in sleep and social suffering. Um, but there was some chatter afterwards. And Celeste, this is picking up on what you were saying um, about sleep being an indicator of maybe a couple of different things. Like there's good sleep and maybe there's sleep as an indicator of depression or sleep as a safe space, as a, a type of hiding or helping time pass. And we could talk forever about what time even is these days. But uh, yeah, I think sleep has been a challenge for me personally uh, throughout the pandemic. And it's also been a real comfort. And I'm seeing the way that students are interacting with it for early start days or later start days or two minutes to Zoom, roll out of beds, things like that. Yeah, I was teaching a course that started um, remotely. And these were grade eight students. And 
there are some really great things that you can do remote teaching that you that are a little bit more difficult than face to face. But we would start with a with a check in, like an emotional, like where are you on this? Um, the work of Mark Brackett, the mood meter, and stuff like that. And it was really great to see their responses. Um, and to I think in the feedback I got from some of the students was not only was it nice to actually just say, yeah, this is how I feel, to spend a moment to say, yeah, I got to check in on that for the students, but also to have someone, their teacher, say, if you're feeling this way, here's a strategy. And then it evolved into, if you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling in the blue quadrant, low energy, good level of pleasantness, what are some things that you can do? You know, who, who can you reach out to? Who can you talk to? If you are in the red quadrant, high level of energy, high level of unpleasantness, take a walk. Like if you have permission to actually not be here right now, if that's going to help you, because that's way more important than you being here. So check in with me in five, in five minutes or 10 minutes or what have you. Um, so we were doing some of that work, which I thought was really, which, which I thought was really great. And the only other thing I would say too, is that there was, I was walking down the, the, the corridors and this is when our school was all students on campus every day. I ran into this one teacher and he said, it's really lonely. Even though you're surrounded by people, right? But these people are working on different things, on different schedules because they're different cohorts. They're moving around and uh, you're behind a mask so you can't see everyone's faces. And so all of that cumulative all those cumulative protocols resulted in him saying, I'm surrounded by people, but I'm s- still kind of a lonely profession during this, during this, mm-hmm. you know, the pandemic protocols. Interesting. You talk about those check-ins, Garth. Um, I'm fine. I feel like I see that happening in more classes than I did before. I mean, we've always seen it in many classes, but I feel like it's happening in many, many classrooms that I drop in on now. And I think that whole conversation around well-being has really been brought to the fore through the pandemic, which I think is amazing. Um, and for sure, there are kids who are finding it really, really hard, as you mentioned, Celeste. I think we've been incredibly lucky. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed in the way that we've shifted our program is our our, our teams, we call it our games period, um, has now shifted. So like kids can't be on a team because there's no competitions with other schools, but every kid is trying every activity. So we had all the students doing drama at some point in the fall in year seven. And I loved seeing kids who never would have opted to do this before now doing it for a week and a half, two weeks. It's not very much, but the shift in our program that's allowed them to try new things, which I think has helped with their well-being in some cases. Um, and then we also have an outdoor school who we were so incredibly lucky that we can't, we can't send anyone there right now, but they've come to campus. And for the students on campus to be using all of our facilities outside that we have access to has been gold. So to get them outdoors, so even if they're not feeling great in the morning, at least when we were on campus, we were able to get them outside an awful lot, which I have found really, really great. I feel like pre-pandemic, I was probably the same level of frazzled and busy and stressed and like pulled in every direction. But I just thought it was my fault. I just thought it was like I was doing mothering or teaching wrong and that there was like some magical way to do it where I wouldn't feel overwhelmed all the time. And now I feel like we've all just come out of the closet and been like, yeah, this is really hard. How do we do this? Like, well, and now we have like something else to like attribute that systemic stress to and all these like check-ins and acknowledging of the role that 
working parents are playing right now, especially teachers who have children, I feel like this is actually one of the blessings in disguise that we're kind of being a little bit more cognizant of the toll, the stress, the emotional weight that we're all carrying. Les, as a new mom, have you been feeling that like weight, that pull of work versus parenting in this time? How's pandemic parenting going? I've definitely found there's been moments I remember texting my sister at one point and I was like, is this just what it's like now? I'm just going to suck at work and suck at being a mom. I'm like, <laughs> like, I just feel like I'm failing at both things. And, and, but that, that, that was like, I feel like in a, in a, in a very bad moment at the, at a specific time, I think for the most part, I've actually felt really lucky because I'm working from home. Um, my husband took the semester off from teaching at Humber. So he's home more. He's, we're kind of tag teaming. Like he works in the morning and then he goes in, into the shop at night and works at night. So we don't see each other much. We kind of are on opposite schedules. Um, but in terms of being able to take a five minute break in the middle of the day and go downstairs and, and see my daughter's face is just like the best thing. Whereas if, you know, this was not COVID times, then I would probably be on a plane somewhere, God knows where right now. <laughs> and, um, and I feel really, really fortunate to have just had this time at home with her, even though there's times where I feel like, how, how do people do this? How do you have a kid? And I'm sure once we have some kind of daycare situation, it might be a little bit easier and we're not tag teaming full-time working and parenting both of us, but it's, uh, it's been a blessing in a lot of ways. Adam or Garth, do you want to jump in with any opportunities that you've noticed on your school level? Well, I would just sort of piggyback on what Les said, because I've got two young boys, 13 and 11, and the first big chunk, that first big school closure um, was about you know getting outside and those types of things. For us, the second and third school closure is about video games. <laughs> you know? So, so I'd be interested to hear what everyone has to say, you know? There's a lot of talk around uh, learning loss over the last uh, over the last year, and I wonder about uh, learning gains in in many different ways. You know, having a I don't think my son would ever have questioned why do I have to do this? Why do I have to read? They would have just been kind of going along and like doing school, but because now because of the these times the the landscape that he's in, he's like, oh, why do I have to do this? And so we're having these great conversations about why history is important, why math is a language. Um, so I would just say that that's a really interesting part of parenting in, in a pandemic. I would add to that to say it's exactly been, <clears throat> that's been my experience as well, where learning has always gone in a hundred directions and that learning loss doesn't resonate with me at all. I think it's only now, uh, an opportunity to acknowledge all the other types of learning that have occurred and that students will probably just be on some sort of different trajectory having had this experience um, for better and for worse in a variety of areas. One of the opportunities that teachers seem to express very early in the pandemic last year and that more curriculum leaders have been expressing as well is just the insufficiency of big C curriculum, how the hundreds of expectations are not the point, and so cut them down. And tons of assessments are not the point, so back them off when possible. And stay away from full-length examinations if you can. And that's introducing lots of opportunities to be creative, but it's also refocusing on just the larger things that are were always part of students and teachers and parents and families and school communities' lives. 
um, sort of a rebalancing. That's really well said, Adam. Because I really love how students have also become leaders. Like when we were on campus, that because students were cohorted there in their classroom, teachers were the ones moving around. And so students weren't transi transitioning from class to class as much, but they came, became the experts in their classroom, in particular, the technology in their classroom. Like just before we had our break, some grade four students have wrote a book for any teacher that comes into their room on how to deal with the tech in their room. And I thought it was just a great way of seeing how they just took control of, control of it. They're like, you're struggling, we're going to help you. And they just became the experts, which I, love I loved. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to yeah. our house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the focus I on totally... those competencies has also come to the front. You know, this is something we've been talking about for a really long time at Future Design School in terms of how do we put more focus on those competencies and, as Adam said, less focus on, like, the laundry list of expectations and rather how do we get at those things through to the development of competencies. And I think that we're seeing those competencies in action every day when students are doing things like creating books for their teachers and yeah. their um, <laughs> like the resilience that they've shown, their ability to um, to adapt to different situations, their ability to creative creatively problem solve together. I think all of those things are just coming coming to the forefront here. And the big question I think moving forward is how do we start to shift towards those being the the things that we're valuing and assessing and and tracking student growth on over time, um, as opposed to the the checkbox um, sort of recipe method of looking at, at curriculum. And I think that's a big opportunity moving forward that will come out of this. Yeah, and I think too, um, the, the equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice piece is another, you know, opportunity, but also another way that students are supporting themselves. And it's been amazing to, um, to see this come to the forefront of all of our, of all of our discussions like well-being. I think this is the time where now we have opportunity to, to talk directly about this, to address systems of colonialism and oppression and the role that independent schools play and to really turn the lens on ourselves as educators in this system, um, I th that's an exciting thing. Well, speaking to that, just kind of like tagging back to what you said before, I agree with you, Garth, that learning loss, I don't think is going to be an issue for my son or my students. But I think learning loss is going to be a real issue for many children who don't have consistent access to the internet or children who have not been able to attend school at all this past year. And I'm wondering, like, what is our role as elite independent institutions with the learning loss? Like, I am worried about the gap getting wider between the elite people who can afford tuition at our schools and people who don't have internet consistently or access to a device or who don't have, you know, parents that can enrich their learning. That's interesting. I always struggle with that though. Like maybe it's like the whole idea of learning loss. Like I, there's a phrase I learned many, many years ago that always starts that just said build from the known. And I always think of like, no matter what it is that you're teaching, you're starting where kids are at. And just because they were in grade two last year, now they're in grade three, doesn't mean they actually learned what the teacher thought they taught them in grade two. You need to know what, where each student is at and work from that point. And it's the same if they're in grade 10 and 11, like you don't really know where they are until you get to know your students. And so I feel like Sure, maybe in grade 12, they may not get to the same end point they always got to every other year. But if you start from where they're at and you move forward, that feels like valuable learning to me. Um, I think that learning loss too, it's so much of the, to me, it's a loaded term because I, like Laura said, it's associated with this idea that every student needs to be at a certain point at a certain time. 
And I think a lot of the conversation around learning loss is also connected, at least in the U.S. and the schools we work with there, to standardized testing. And that, you know, if the students aren't scoring well on these tests, it means there's been all this learning loss and this is a disaster. And I think what's actually happening is teachers are sort of saying even louder than they've been saying for the past however many years that these standardized tests are not a good measure of learning in the first place. And so there's definitely been seat time lost and there's been uh, instruction lost. Um, but I would wholeheartedly agree with um, what Lara's saying around that it's it's not necessarily um, the disastrous loss that, you know, there's like reports from like McKinsey and things like that that are coming out that are trying to quantify exactly how much learning was lost. And it's you, you can't you can't quantify it. I, don't, I think it's so much deeper and bigger than that. And and I, I I just don't think learning loss is the right term. I definitely agree. There's inequities, and I think what you're saying about inequity is is totally valid and, and a really important issue to think about, especially for those kids that don't have access to the the devices and the technology to stay connected during these times. Um, but I, I wouldn't quantify it as learning loss. And just to pay, just to piggyback on that. And to get to Celeste's really important question around you know, around learning loss being uh, being distributed unevenly uh, across the province, across the country, wh- what have you, you've asked a really great question, and I don't have the like we don't have the answer to that. But for our schools to consider that question, I think is going to be really significant. Because what is the public purpose of independent schools? I mean, I didn't come up with that term, so don't quote me on it. But, you know, this is something that I think we should be asking ourselves. Like, what can we do as institutions to, like, a learning loss isn't the right term, but to allow everybody to rise with the tides. Like, because I think that there is great things that have been happening in our schools, but I don't think that that's experienced across the board. And I think we're in the nascent stages of this discussion. I think we've never been challenged. Oh, yeah. Never, we've never been challenged. Our, these organizations, the institutions that we are a part of, have never been challenged um, to really examine that question as meaningfully as we are today. Celeste, your question has challenged me to think about it differently. I came in thinking, you know, sort of agreeing with everyone about not loving this term "learning loss," but you're right. <laughs> it is the inequity. It is the gap. And even to Lara's point about build from the known, um, that assumes people have got in the door. And for our schools that have uh, admission standards or requirements, uh, tests of mission fitness or whatever the language is, um, that does become an opportunity for our schools to play a role uh, in developing more equitable practices. And maybe it might be interesting yeah. to focus in the future around those other skills too. Like, like I think it was Les was articulating about the competencies and maybe it's about talking about how kids anywhere have applied any of those in any context, maybe not even necessarily in a school. Um, so maybe once assuming kids are back in school in the fall, let's say, um, and we're having converse, how can our schools help to further the development of those kinds of skills maybe? Um, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> exactly. Even, I use some of those for the admissions process. I think what Adam's saying about admissions is really interesting. And how do you leverage yeah, a competency-based sure. admission process rather than an academic-based admissions process? And more importantly, with the universities, mm-hmm. because if we're trying to compare students who have had a quote-unquote mostly uninterrupted learning experience during the pandemic to somebody who 
has been more remote and hasn't had consistent access to learning in a traditional way. Can you compare those two students together? Probably not. So what are universities and colleges doing to ensure that they're equitably examining all applicants? That's a that's another question altogether. I think that's like the the big it's, it's in a lot of ways it's, it's tied to that competency piece as well in terms of if we want to move towards focusing on those things more, we need to move away from admissions being just university being just based on grades. Because I remember having these conversations with my students where they'd say to me, Ms. McBath, you keep saying you want us to do real world learning or learning that's real, but for me, grades are real. So just tell me what my grade is, right? Like that's because that's all they cared about because that's what got them into university. And I think if we could move away from that grades-based model for university and focus more on those competencies, it's a big opportunity. And, and also it, and an opportunity to di- diversify student bodies, right? I know some of the universities that we're working with in the U.S. are thinking about this in terms of turning the lens back on themselves, like Garth mentioned earlier, and saying, you know, what kind of student body do we want to have here? And if right now the standard to get into our school is that everyone needs to score a specific score on the SAT and knows how to like do well on all the tests, and we're getting one type of thinker and one type of person on our campus. And is that really the kind of ecosystem of people that we want to have here? Or do we want an ecosystem of diverse thinkers who have learned differently, who've had different experiences? And how do you um, create that through your admissions process, which I think that maybe that would be an upside of all this coming out of the pandemic is that they'll focus on the equity piece first, but it could lead to this greater diversity of the types of students that are at an institution. I always think of the little people and I always love not so much this year, but in previous years, how a kindergarten is like entrance for our school involves a, an opportunity to play and just adults watching them play. And I wonder what the version of that is getting into university. Like, yeah. what is it that's sort of more oh. performance-based? Like, how does that work with an older age group? I think, I think playing in the sandbox, you would learn a lot about people. Like, yep. just how do, you, how do you play with each other? It's a good, good provocation. I want to know how you're all doing because, you know, obviously this has been a year of great realizations at the time of recording this. Derek Derek Chauvin was just found guilty of murder. We've been sitting with the death of George Floyd that's awakened a lot of people's consciousness to anti-Black racism. It has been a hard year of processing the inequities of things like vaccinations and people getting paid sick days in Ontario. And I don't know about you, but I find it's really heavy and that self-care is kind of a concept that is really difficult in this time. I want to know, before we go to the ticket out the door, how are you actually doing? Like, legit, how are you doing? And what are you doing to take care of yourself? I'm going to start with Lara. Oh, (laughs) Um, how am I doing? Honestly, that varies from day to day, week to week. I feel like last week for our April marked break was the first week I've had off since last March where I finally went, oh, now I'm cleaning my house like other people did a year ago. <laughs> like I finally had a bit of a break, which was nice. But yeah, the news is just relentless. Like there's just, it always feels like, that. oh, there's something else now coming. And I don't even know how I cope with that. Some of it, sometimes I just want to be informed in order to cope with it. And other times I just need it to go away and to not pay any attention to it for a little while and get outside and go for a walk. Like I found that those have been my two go-tos. If I can get outside, if I can eat well and force myself to go to bed, like you're, it's like that student you were talking about, Adam, that helps for me. Just back to those basics. If I can focus on that, then it's a bit better, but it's hard. 
everything is hard right now. It's interesting you say back to basics uh, as relates to walking. It reminds me a couple of years ago of a colleague that taught us uh, a couple of workshops on Tai Chi. And she said, the first thing you do is you learn to walk. And I, that's absolutely been one of the biggest changes during the pandemic. There's so many walks. Um, I've never been on a walk that I regretted, only when I was too lazy inside to get outside. And listening to the Teaching Tomorrow podcast during those walks has been a really nice way of feeling like I'm connected to you, Celeste, even though I miss your face terribly. Um, yeah, just back to basics, the walking, the neighborhoods, some of the simplicity. Um, baking bread, I would say, is another back to basics. I didn't know it was that easy. I didn't know I was going to eat that much of it. It's been delicious. It's a nice smell in the house. Something to do takes time. If anyone's looking to get started, if you've managed to avoid Mark Bittman's no need bread recipe, need K-N-E-A-D, uh, it's pretty foolproof. Send it and to so me. We'll put it in the show notes. I'd like to get that recipe too. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> It's a good yeah. one. I'll share it out with everybody. I'm just thinking about those walks, Adam. I find being near water also helps. Like if I can get to the lake, my whole body just somehow relaxes every single time. And I laugh because I listen, I re-listened to that first podcast today, Walking by the Lake, and that's exactly where I listened to it the first time. <laughs> it's like oh. partway through, I was like, oh yeah. And it's just my happy place. And like you said, listening to the podcast is great. <laughs> Garth, how are you really? And what are you doing to take care of yourself? Um. It's a great question. I struggle with this one because uh, every day, you know, trying to find structure and purpose and, and meaning is not, uh, it used to come quite readily. It's, sometimes it doesn't anymore. Um, and I struggle with, uh, you know, some of the ways that we see ways that education improve and also the same same time, we see how long it's going to actually take to realize some of those improvements. Um, doing a lot of reading about about uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and those are wonder like they're incredible learning experiences for me as a as a white male, cisgendered, able-bodied. It's an amazing gift to read Desmond Cole's *The Skin We're In*. Deep diversity, you know, a whole bunch of different resources. Um, but there's also like a regret that I didn't do this soon enough, quick enough. It's not in teachers' college; it should be, um, you know, those types of things. So you're really grappling with some of these things. And um, some days I'm like the best parent ever, and some days I am not the best parent ever. And so it's navigating those, as you know, we've all talked about before. It's just it's just navigating those that unpredictability, the the sense of new hope, you know, living in constant hope, <laughs> also simultaneously constant fear of not realizing. Um, so that's how I'm doing. And <laughs> how's that for an answer? <laughs> and uh, and um, yeah, like my son and I play baseball like four or five times a week, you know, playing cat playing catch and those types of things, which like fills my, fills my bucket. Um, and it's being totally serious here. It is amazing to watch my 11 year old play Fortnite. He is amazing at it mm. and it's wild. And it's, as I've said in the past, it's amazing to see, uh, my kids do something so well in a way, like, I just know I'll never get there. <laughs> it's like, wow, mm. that's like really cool. So, yeah. 
Les, how are you? Um, it's, I, first of all, thanks for asking. Um, and, and I love the way that in, in the email you sent with the question, you actually like capitalized the word are, because I think we often ask people, how are you? But we expect the answer that is like, good, thanks. How are you? Right? I think of Letter Penny for anyone who watches that show. How are you now? Not so bad. And you? Right? Like that's kind of the expectation. So thank you for asking. And as you were asking and I was thinking about it, I was like, actually, I've had a pretty, pretty rough month. Um, and, and it's been really challenging. My dad is really unwell and it's been a big challenge to try to balance supporting my mom as a full-time caretaker and also be working full-time. And I'm really fortunate because the team at Future Design School is incredibly supportive and flexible and has been amazing over the past month as we've been dealing with this. But it's the first time I think that anyone has really like challenged me on really, how are you? And I'm like, I don't actually don't mm. know how I am. Um, cause normally I'm kind of water off a duck's back. That's my, my MO in life usually. So, um, yeah, it's been rough, but I think the things that are keeping me sane are my incredibly beautiful daughter that I get to hang out with every day and, and moving. I think the Cobra 21 moves Strava group has actually like really motivated me on, on like getting on there and just seeing what the people are doing. I did this rowing challenge where I tried to row two K every day for 30 days. And that it was only 10 minutes, but it was like, that's all that I have time for right now between <laughs> momming and, and working. And, and it was perfect to keep me moving. And so I just want to give a shout out to everybody on that core 21 moves group for motivating me to keep at it because it's sweating has always been my my stress relief my mental health break um, yeah I'm so sorry to hear that your dad is not well right now that yeah. really is hard especially at this time like that's the worst <sighs> and thanks for just sharing that authentically and honestly thanks for asking how are you Celeste Ugh. yeah thanks for asking um yeah, this has been like the full year has been really hard and good. Like I had a child just around the same time that Les had a child and kind of being out of the classroom for some of that time felt like such a gift. And like I was sort of getting around the worst of the pandemic by being on mat leave. Um, and yeah, I feel like I'm not doing my job as well as I would like to and not being a good enough parent. But I felt like that before as well when Ambrose was one. So I'm just sort of reminding myself that this is also just the grind of working and having children. Everything is just kind of held together by dental floss and duct tape at this point. So like, I am like so cognizant that if one thing kind of falls apart in my life, everything else will unravel. Like, if my wife were to get sick, everything would kind of fall apart. If my, you know, parents got sick, everything would kind of fall apart. Like all these things are just kind of holding on very tentatively. So right now I feel okay, but it doesn't feel like a deep abiding. Okay. I do find it interesting. Like this is the first time where I can think of where everyone I know in the world is dealing with the same thing. And you can say things like you just said, Celeste, and we all go, yeah, we know what you mean. And it's the first time I've ever seen that anywhere. And it's horrible, but also reassuring in an odd sort of way to just go, oh, okay, you get it. <laughs> and you understand mm. what I'm talking about, which is kind of nice. And freeing too, because yeah. I think that we can actually say truly how we are. And people, I think, have more bandwidth to hold that than they did two years ago. At least I feel that from the people that I'm around. 
I want to do the ticket out the door. I know that it's a weird pivot to go from, hey, things are weird and hard to, hey, what's your favorite pizza? But I I think that it's a fun way to end and it's a positive note to close off of. So I'm going to ask a question and we're going to just pivot through. Don't overthink it too much. I'm going to go alphabetically. So it'll go Adam, Laura, Les, no, wait, that's not alphabetical. Adam, Sounded Gar- good to me. <laughs> Whatever. We'll go. It's a different alphabet. <laughs> I teach English, too. Okay, so <laughs> we'll go Adam, Garth, Laura, Les. Okay, so first question, what are you grateful for right now? Uh, my friends. Health. Time with my partner. We are often on different schedules. Now we're not. Um, my family's, my family, yeah. What's something that people often misunderstand about you? Uh, I don't know, because people rarely say what they <laughs> understand. Garth, I understand you to be. But I would say um, people see me as someone who's uh, only ever really interested in innovation and, and things that are new, but I deeply value tradition um, and history. And I was thinking along the lines of something we talked about earlier, where people often think I'm a big extrovert, and that is really not true. Um, I think people think of me as being this very kind of fearless person who will take on any challenge, but actually I'm afraid of literally everything. <laughs> if anyone saw my Women's Network speech I did at the CIS Women's Network last year, you'll, like, they got a whole list of all the things from butterflies to squirrels to everything. <laughs> afraid I like scaredy squirrel. <laughs> but it doesn't stop you less. No, it doesn't. No. Motivates me, but. <laughs> Adam, do you want to jump in? I think people, yeah, I think people overestimate um, how interested I am in organized sports and sports teams. <laughs> That's great. That's a great they answer. They don't realize that I don't care at all. <laughs> That's a great answer. Sorry, Garth. <laughs> I know. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Shower straight away. Take a deep breath. It snooze because I can never go to bed early enough. <laughs> These days it's feed my daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Take a deep breath. Uh, read. Uh, it seems silly. Just say goodnight. I'm the opposite of Adam. He showers first thing before uh, in the morning. I shower last thing before bed. Hmm. What's the last TV show you binged and loved? New Amsterdam. Uh, last TV, uh, Halt and Catch Fire. The Last Kingdom. Um, right now I'm working on uh, Superstore. Mm-hmm. I, I like TV that just is mindless and entertains me. Uh, my husband likes to watch really dark, like dramatic shows. I'm like, no, I don't want to be sad when I watch television. <laughs> what would be your last meal on earth? Mm, chicken wings and watermelon. Like really sweet, fresh watermelon. Uh, it would be with my family. Aww. <laughs> I have two different options. So maybe it's a, a meal and a dessert. Um, ravioli that I had in Northern Italy specifically and with a saffron sauce and then strawberries with maple syrup. I went the same route that Garth did. And the first thing I thought of was surrounded by friends. 
Hmm. The last question, I've asked this before, but I feel like it has different resonance now. What do you think is the future of learning, Adam? I think it's a real focus on motivation, student goal-based motivation for learning. It's hard to sum up in one word, but I think it would be um, the, the future of learning is is definitely going to be seen through um, the lens of dismantling the systems that are in place that f- that would f- that further inequity, that further um, my marginalized groups being further marginalized. And I, sorry, I'm thinking both about what Adam said and what Garth said. And I think for me, the future of learning is open, if that makes sense, where people can find a way in and find a way to learn what's important to, to them. Nice. I love that. Yeah, I think I'd build on that. And so I, the first thing that came to mind was was student-centered, but not in like the, the student-centered way we talk about it, but really driven by students. Um, And I think that it's going to increasingly happen outside of school walls. And I think that formalized education is going to look very different in the future. Mm -hmm. That's well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming back, for sharing and for making space for this. I'm really grateful for all of you. A big thank you to these incredible four or the fantastic four, yes, the fantastic four, for sharing their insights about teaching and learning in this pandemic. I'm grateful to have the excuse to talk to them about important things at this time when we need powerful conversations more than ever in our life. If you like the show, share it with a friend. If you want to support this work, consider leaving a rating and review. If you have comments, questions, or want to connect with me, find me on Instagram at teaching underscore tomorrow. Here you'll find updates about the show and a way to see occasional pictures of me when I was in kindergarten or reflective posts about my own teaching journey. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep asking big questions. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.